0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today we talk with Darian Lockett. Darian Lockett is a professor at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He's done a lot of work on the Catholic epistles, particularly the book of James. He also wrote a book with Mickey Klink called Understanding Biblical Theology, sort of lays out five different types of biblical theology. We're going to talk through that today, just those different types and how people can fall into different types of biblical theology, start at different places, even whether they realize it or not sometimes. He's also a Kansas Jayhawks fan, being a graduate of Kansas, so I couldn't help but give him a little bit of a hard time about cheating in college sports and how Kansas is obviously no doubt paying players like everybody else. But the question is, should players be allowed to be paid? That's something that we dabble in just a little bit at the end. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Darian that we had back at ETS. This episode is presented by b Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out all the things that b Academic is cooking up this spring. Also, you can go to csbible.com to see our other sponsors, the Christian Standard Bible, which is an English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. And now our conversation with Darian. No big deal. Let's go. It. Darian, uh, you have a very interesting upbringing as a Christian, both as a Christian and as a scholar, denominationally and whatnot. So uh, give a little bit of background about just how you became a Christian, the home you grew up in, where you grew up, that kind of stuff, and then kind of your your move from Baptist to Presbyterian, which makes me cry every time I think wow. about <laughs> it. Don't cry too much. I think we share a lot in common. Uh,
1: <laughs> A lot of sensibilities. Yeah, uh, appreciate the question. I grew up in Kansas and uh, outside of Kansas City, and um, I would call it a nominally Christian home. I knew about God, vaguely. Uh, I knew about Jesus kind of vaguely, but none of that really was, uh, was really important to, to me or our family. We didn't really go to church or anything like that. Um, until one summer, my sister went off to a church camp um, in Kansas city. And, um, at the end of the week, we picked her up and she was in the front seat telling my parents about what had happened, uh, that week. And, and with tears in her eyes, she was talking about how she had gotten saved. And I was in the back seat and I wasn't really paying attention until she was in tears because she usually wasn't that emotional. (laughs) And I thought to myself, what on earth did she get saved from? What did they do to her at that camp? (laughs) You know, because I was 11 and not quite, putting things together. Later that night, as kind of the culmination of this church camp she'd gone to, there was a big rally and they were sharing the gospel. And I remember that was the first moment that I had heard more than just vague kind of comments about God and Jesus. And um, I, I, you know, now I would call that, I was awakened to my sin at that moment. I was, was, uh, the spirit kind of woke something up inside of me. At the time, I couldn't put my finger on anything Except this vague notion of wow something's wrong, mm. and um, and I need something. I remember later that summer, mowing the lawn. You know this is back when we had Walkmans. You know I'm, <laughs> I'm mowing the lawn for my Walkman. I'm listening to ACDC, and I'm, you know, listening to Hell's Bells. Satan's gonna get you. He's gonna take you to hell. Hell's Bells. And I'm thinking to myself, no wait a second, I. I, I, I think I think that's true. And I remember freaking out. I stopped mowing the lawn and grabbed the tape and threw it out and mowed over it, <laughs> thinking uh that was scary. I wonder how many people got
0: saved listening to ACDs. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, again, I think it's just more awakening to, yeah. okay, this this actually is not just lyrics. This mm. is real. Um and then and then actually the next summer, I continued to have these kinds of experiences. Next summer I went to that same church camp and I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna figure out exactly what. What my sister was talking about, and w- why I'm kind of on edge now, and feeling kind of empty. Where where am I headed? Uh, and it was the first evening at this church camp. Again, heard this very clear gospel message mm-hmm. and and call to respond. Um, and it was it was like the easiest thing at that moment. I raised my hand. I thought, Oh yeah, this this is what I've. And been you were how for. old? How old then? I was twelve. Twelve. I was twelve. 1985 and went back to the discovery room and sat and chatted with a couple of counselors uh, and they of just, uh, you know, walked me through Romans. And I thought, yeah, this makes complete sense. Um, I, I need, I need to be redeemed and Jesus, Jesus is real. Yeah. From that moment, 12 on, I, um, I mean, that was a conversion there. Yeah. There was kind of no looking back at that point. Of course, there were moments of, you know, um, being inattentive or, um, you know, I wouldn't say backsliding, but just you know, inattentive or or immature. But from that moment on, it was it was very clear there was a change, um, uh, the kind of music,
0: the kind of things I was into, the kind of friends. All, all that began to, to, to change. And yeah, so sometimes people look back at, you know, if they get saved or become a Christian younger, they think, I don't really know if that was legit or not. You don't have any doubt about no, that. Well, uh, No, I mean, again, not because my faith was so strong or that my track
1: record from that moment was so impeccable, but just something fundamentally shifted inside me. Yeah. Um, and I think I was already, again, theological categories now, I could describe God's work in my life way beforehand, um, both preparing me, helping me see uh, my sin, but also just a, uh, a notion that God God exists, that's not something I struggled with. Of course, at first it's this vague notion of someone in the sky I'm yeah. not connected to, but never was there, a, even before this experience, was there a moment that, oh, I doubt the existence of God or, um, or something like that. So yeah, that was a, a, a fundamental shift. And, you know, discipleship from then on, you know, uh, I became Baptist by attraction uh, to young ladies, one who now has become my <laughs> wife. Uh, uh, went to the local Southern Baptist Church and they just kind of took me along and I began to grow there. And, um, um cool little story though, one of these two gals, my, my wife's name is Nicole, um, we, we went to an FCA meeting together. She was not a Christian. I had just had this experience two years before. And, um, during the course of this meeting, you know, the gospel was shared, and we were kind of at a moment of response. And the the guy leading said, hey, go, you know, Nicole was responding. She was kind of raising her hand that she, hey, I, I want to pray about this. And so I got to pray with Nicole uh, as she was becoming a Christian That's just awesome. two years after I did. And so, yeah, we were just fast friends and yeah. growing together in the same church and got baptized and were really involved in the youth group. And our youth pastor was – you know, the guy who ended up doing our, our wedding. And yeah. so, so the local church became an integral part of how I began to, you know, grow in Christ and learn, learn about how to be a Christian. And so that's the story I
0: want my two daughters to have. Yeah, just some yeah. sweet little Christian boy leads them to the Lord when they're like 14, yeah. and then they just go off and get yeah, married. That yeah. would be the best. It is, you know what? And and I think that testimony or just
1: that experience is precious. God gives us gifts in these experiences yeah. and in people, and I have no idea how it happened, but it <laughs> happened. Yeah. And. And it is sweet because Nicole and I look back at this life together. Yeah. And there's so much of it we lived before we got married in just growing together, being dear friends, being there for each other, and then struggling in our faith and growing in our faith. So, And and, and that story continues. I mean, the second part of your story, you know, um, or at, uh, Nicole and I are there at, at church. We grew up in uh, Southern Baptist Church in Lawrence, Kansas. And our youth pastor, he had gone to Midwestern Theological Seminary there in Kansas City. So when it came time for me, I had you know, fast forward a bit, did some mission work and went to the University of Kansas and finished there. I was thinking about seminary, so all all the indications, all the signs were pointing, well head, head on to the Southern Baptist Seminary. Uh, Nicole and I went there and while at Midwestern, there were all kinds of conversations about, you know, soteriology, you know, big words that I hadn't heard before, yeah. but I had experienced and, and, and um, there were quite a few kind of reformed guys there talking about, uh, Calvinism, and I just thought, what is that? And this was uh, what mid
0: to mid to late 90s. Uh,
1: yeah, late 90s, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I remember having a conversation with a fellow seminarian, um, and and he was talking about how, you know, God had chosen for the foundation of the world those who would be saved and and not, and I just said, I I, I can't believe that. That's not fair. Mm. And he he looked at me dead seriously, and he said, I would be careful what I would say, I would and would not believe about God. And mm. I thought, oh my word. That dude is serious. I need to think about this. Yeah. Anyway, and that that started inside of both Nicole and I, uh, theologically, um, kind of ruminating and thinking about no, scriptures. Was she, was she studying at Midwestern? She wasn't studying. No, she was there with me. But we you know, we just debrief every day. Yeah, about yeah, the kind yeah of course, stuff yeah. going on. Yeah, my wife
0: has heard more uh, things about seminary yeah, dissertation than she probably ever yeah, wants to hear. Yeah,
1: and then I just we she, she helps
0: me process things
1: yeah. in that regard too. And so anyway, during that time at Midwestern, we really became convinced of the doctrines of grace. And this was not a scary or mean kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, my goodness, how could God take my freedom away? It was more, oh, what a a great God, a God who before I ever got here had planned for me, uh, made provisions for me. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Mm -hmm. That's before I ever knew I needed something. And that that, that just was my experience, you know, as a kid, uh, being
0: awakened to sin way before I knew I needed something. God was working in my life so yeah you know the baptists uh there are baptists who believe that so how did you how did you not stay a baptist even after that you know the well, Baptists would try to hang in there but how'd it go from there
1: yeah that's the next part of the story so you know we had gone to midwestern thinking about doing mission work i had been uh doing mission work for uh, an organization before seminary and i thought okay i need a seminary education we need to go into the mission field um, first semester there at seminary talked to the missions prof and i shared with him what i thought god was leading me to do i wanted to train pastors on the mission field and he just said you need a phd for that you need to go keep studying and nicole and i looked at each other and thought um i don't want to do that i my background is i i failed out of baylor <laughs> the first semester <laughs> i was there i thought yeah okay that's actually not a good direction for me but it, you know, that, that idea that he shared with us really, one, threw us for a loop, but then also began a journey that we started thinking and praying, well, is further studies what you want us to do, Lord? And St. Andrews popped on the you know on our radar. Um, lots and lots of things began pointing that direction. Anyway, long story short, went on to St. Andrews, studied with Richard Bacham for a while there. Um, but while sitting in the scripture and theology seminar with guys like Christopher Seitz and Mark Elliott, uh, Richard Bachman would come in sometimes to that seminar, began really pushing this idea of the connection between the Old and the New Testaments, yeah. hermeneutically how the story goes together. I ha- I did not have theological categories to, to track with this. Um, and so, yes, I was Reformed and Baptist, and that was fine. Um, but hermeneutically, thinking about the continuity between Old and New, the continuity of the uh, of the covenant meal. I mean, again, I'm ha- I have language to talk about this now, but at the moment in you know PhD in St Andrews, I was you know tracking this connection between the the meal in the Old Testament, the meal in the New, and then you know what what about what about the the baptism and circumcision? These kinds of questions yeah. started swirling, and the hermeneutical pressure of the one story of God, the old into the new um, um, continuity, began pressing on me more and more and more. Um, And this is what kind of broke the camel's back, you know. It was infant baptism was the one that was just that's not on the table. That does not make sense. But the more this continuity was being pressed, the pressure again. This is kind of a sightseeing phrase, you know. The pressure of the old moving me toward Christ uh, with its own per se voice or from the own, you know, the witness of the Old Testament Mm -hmm. itself pushing me toward Christ. This this kind of hermeneutical continuity began to. Move some things around theologically for us, um, and again, it wasn't scary. It wasn't, um, oh man, you know, this is God doing something against my free will or something. But more, this is beautiful. Yeah, um, this kind of continuity and coherence, theological coherence, that I began to see in in the Reformed tradition um, that I hadn't seen at least in my own experience to then was really beautiful and compelling. And so, step by step. Uh, a, a little reluctant. I mean, cause really at this moment, I'm thinking all the contacts I have in yeah. church life yeah. in institutional life, they're all Baptist. It'd be scary. Yeah. And I thought, can I actually sit in an interview and without like breaking uh, a, a serious face, could I actually tell a Southern Baptist who's interviewing me that I want to baptize my kids, but I want to teach at a Southern Baptist seminary. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> that's yeah, that's, that's gonna, never going to happen. No, that's not going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> that's never going to happen. And we had, you know, tear filled nights. Yeah. Where we were holding our hands, praying, you know, Nicole and I, uh, you know, praying, falling asleep with tears in our eyes. Lord, this is so hard. Um, why why is this happening? We don't yeah. want to go down this path. This is so scary. But it just built and built and built. Um, the plausibility structure of a kind of a, a reformed understanding of continuity between old and new. And how that plays out then in our own children's lives, our yeah. lives. Finally culminated a little later when we were in New York. I was teaching at the King's College and we were going to a PCA church there. And, you know, the dam burst one Sunday morning when the Mm -hmm. pastor was preaching from 1 Corinthians 10 and all of Israel baptized, you know, uh, as they crossed the the Red Sea. And I thought, oh, doggone it, tears in my eyes. (laughs) I just thought, okay, I'm home. Next Sunday, everyone's getting wet. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it was was so sweet. How many kids is Jeff? Three at the time. So real my fun. daughter, she she had a believer's baptism, right? She yeah. she already she had a real baptism, and then she, okay, it, yeah, 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 it was all real, brother, right? There's <laughs> one baptism, so we we have fellowship here, man. One brother. baptism, amen. Uh, but yeah, my two little kids, uh, my boys, they they were way too young uh, yeah. to to understand, but they were receiving this covenant sign, and yeah, yeah, that's still deeply, deeply important to me, and I don't want that to be a moment of um, undue distinction between. You know, f- brothers and sisters who are are wrecked by the gospel, yeah, as yeah, it were. Yeah. But I, I realize it's a difference of you know, hey, we're 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 not we agree that baptism is commanded by our Lord and Savior, but yeah. how and to whom uh, yeah. the sign is applied. You know, we we have a kind of different theological matrix to think about that. But that's that's kind of the sketch. Of, yeah.
0: So how did you? How did you? Have you talked to? Have you had conversations with your older and your younger? Between like you've had two different types of baptism. Has that been a conversation you've had to have? No, not really. I mean, again, because we're just stressing. There's one baptism. Yeah. There's uh, the so there's, cath- there's catholicity on baptism even within your own home. <laughs>
1: yeah, there is, and and that's never been something we've pressed really hard between my yeah. daughter and then my my sons. Um, we were very clear this this was a shift for us personally. Um, when we were shifting in this direction, we were very clear about we just want to raise our kids and expect them to begin experiencing the goodness and grace of Jesus. Yeah. We're not expecting them to be little sinners that all of a sudden pray a prayer and then, boom, we start treating them differently. Yeah. Um, we, we we want them to grow in grace from day one. And they're, we were praying that they just have an experience, not like I had. Yeah. The light, it's like a light switch. Bang. I prayed a prayer and something's different. Yeah more like the rising sun yeah slowly slowly the truth and power of the gospel dawns in their lives and i just think those are two kinds of ways of thinking about conversion it can dawn slowly such that you can't even point to a moment and that's what that was our goal we just want our kids to never be able to point to that moment where Mm -hmm. it became real it was just it was always there and they can
0: perceive growing in grace Uh, yeah my wife and i've been we we've been thinking through that we've got a five and a two-year-old daughter right now and it is. I mean, it's hard to, okay, when we pray with them, when we read scripture to them, are we praying with them as yeah. non-believers? Yeah, are we, you know, and, and I and I tend to kind of go the route that you're going. Maybe some of my Baptist friends would be mad at me for that. But I don't, uh, I, I talk about, you know, we say, uh, Lord, help. Uh, would you help us to love you and trust you and obey you more? Mm-hmm. Mommy and daddy need to do that. Yeah. Harper and Emma need to do that. And so we kind of use that language. Yeah. Right. Uh, not thank you for saving us or whatever, but just sort of a. Uh, so we've tried to figure out how do we find that balance between we're trying to call them to respond to the Lord while also raising them up in the covenant of the Lord and all yeah. way. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's the language
1: of scripture. You know, there is right. an expectation that that uh, we rely on the Lord to give us power and strength to obey, yeah. to believe, to repent. Um, but at the same time, to call us to mm-hmm. moments of repentance, mm-hmm. you know, m- mm-hmm. moments of, uh, of decision. Um, I, I think, yeah, that, that's been powerfully important for us as we have raised our kids. And yeah. of course, we're not perfect parents and there's all kinds of, you know, challenges that we've run into, but, but theologically, that's been, um, you know, really compelling to us. Yeah. yeah. I make mean, like a joke like you have a you have a home over here in the PCA if you ever want to come <laughs> because we believe in one baptism, right? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll accept Amen. yours, right? Amen. And we'll
0: get your kids wet as they come too. But Well. <laughs> yeah, I'm just i I'm going to uh, I'll wait till they're too old to be sprinkled and we'll just do we do there the you baptism go. and it'll be fine. Uh, so you got you were uh you did New Testament PhD. Uh, you did your, you've done a lot of work in uh, the Catholic epistles, canonical reading, that kind of thing. Yeah. How'd you get into all that? What what was your, what was your interest and sort of what what has come out of that? What kind of work has come out of that?
1: Yeah, at St. Andrews, I was in this um, story of telling about getting on to St. Andrews and um, studying there. It was James. Um, and it actually is an experience on the mission field that really got me interested in uh, James and suffering it was in um, in the former Soviet Union preaching in a small you know uh, a small town and was very excited and preaching the gospel and after this was expecting this big response and uh, the only thing that happened after I preached this sermon to a group of about 70 people was a little old lady who had obviously lived through communism got up in the back and through a translator she said what about the suffering yeah. and as a 19 year old I thought oh my word I don't know I, what that is <laughs> I have nothing to say yeah and it was I immediately turned to James and thought oh it's not if I face trials it's when and that captivated my attention mm. thinking oh i need to think about my own walk with christ my own discipleship in a new way so it was james and working with bockham and thinking about that text that com- you know propelled me into the phd research and um, i took a little detour and thought about purity in james that's what that wasn't what i first was going to think about but that's what the dissertation was on you like true love weights and james <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah not exactly that no purity <laughs> rings for james you know nope <laughs> um, James did not kiss dating or goodbye or something like that. <laughs> well, okay. apparently Josh Harris didn't either yes, because he's no, now apologized. That's right. so. there's, a, there's a reversal on that. Um, more just thinking about why does James use purity language to describe, you know, the life in Christ? Why yeah. is it unstained from the world? Why is wisdom from above first pure? Those were interesting words. And so the whole dissertation kind of looked at that. Um, but that was a part of this fascination with James and then and then the Catholic epistles themselves. Um, while at St. Andrews, it was introduced to through sites in the scripture theology seminar um, that was really influential to a whole group of us introduced to uh, child's kind of canonical approach the idea that texts sitting together in the canon um, that's telling us something hermeneutically as these texts were collected number one there's already a selection process there there are these 66 books not others there are these seven Letters that are the Catholic epistles and not others, but then they're arranged in a certain way. So collection and association, there there are insights in there that a lot of times you know aren't being used to understand how to interpret these texts. So for me, these two interests were coming together: mm-hmm. uh, James and the Catholic epistles, and you know neglected texts, texts that have been you know not engaged very much, but texts that are really talking about. The, the life of faith in the midst of suffering or difficulty, um, uh, the life of faith in the midst of false teaching and the difficult vagaries of you know uh, uh, teaching that you know, muddled moments in the church where ah here uh, Jude and Second Peter are, are giving clarity in moments of of kind of confusion. The, these these were texts I thought, man, why aren't why aren't we engaging these texts more? They're they're relevant to the church. They're relevant to. Um, to so many things that we're experiencing right now. So anyway, those interests then collided with this new interest in in canon. Um, and only later, I mean, I finished my dissertation, went on to Biola, taught there for several years, but, but later, uh, only published in 2017, was a, a monograph where I could pull these two mm-hmm. kind of interests together, biblical theology, canonical interpretation in biblical theology, and then my long, term kind of interest in the Catholic epistles as a group of letters that yeah. have been neglected. And that was really fun to yeah. see those two interests collide and come together in this monograph. And I mean, we'll see, you know, um, how helpful it is to others. But for me, it was awesome. Yeah. Well, you can say the name of
0: it if you want to, if you want to Yeah. The letter of the pillar it. apostles. Yeah. yeah. Um, so flush it out a little bit. Is there a, is there a theology of the Catholic epistles? Is there an argument or some sort of a Strand of com- of conversation or commentary in the Catholic epistles. How would you kind of put them together in that way?
1: Yeah, when we look at the Pauline
0: letters, um, you see
1: uh, one author, the, the the mind of one author is is kind of being disclosed through several kind of discrete texts, and you can begin to trace a line of thought, some kind yeah. of thematic development in Pauline theology. Or in the Gospels, because they share the same story, you can you can talk about the development of of kind of um, the life of Jesus and, and kind of a theology of the fourfold Gospels uh, because they're telling the same story. When we come to the Catholic epistles, neither do we have the same author through all the texts, nor do we have the same kind of subject matter. Um, so that question is is already more tricky. And yeah. therefore, you know, people haven't gone in this direction. So maybe I should wise up and just figure out <laughs> why people haven't gone this direction. I'm setting you up here, though. I'm or, throwing you a softball for Yeah, many others. But, but yeah, I mean, the idea is I think you can, there are several themes you can see developed through the Catholic epistles. The love command uh, weaves its way through James all the way through Jude. But, but what's interesting is in taking on kind of different contexts than James, uh, very much thinking about wholeness. This idea of teleos being complete, perfect. Perfect is often how it's translated or mature. But this idea of wholeness before God entails love, love of others, love of the neighbor. And James even quotes Leviticus 19, 18. First uh, Peter, love of brothers in the midst of suffering and persecution, external pressure, and. Um, um 2 Peter, though very, very slight there in chapter 2, he talks about those who have, uh, it would have better that they hadn't known than had they come to know the knowledge, yeah. you know, uh, uh, but to forsake the command. Uh, and I think that command is the love command. Uh, so even in Second Peter, it shows up in First John. Clearly it's uh, to know that we know the Lord, uh, to know that we know him, is, is to love the neighbor, to love the brother. Um, so, this is a theme that kind of follows through the contrast between God and the world that 's another theme that that holds the Catholic epistles together mm-hmm. um, so that 's part of what the book does at the very end is if we think about this uh, set of texts as a collection as a coherent collection, what kind of themes uh, come out of it as we as we you know view them together? I still you know the, i don 't want to use a canonical reading of the Catholic epistles to paper over differences or to smash the variations between the texts so that they're, you know, kind of seen in monotone or something like that. Uh, But I think they hold together in in a way and there are new things that are accentuated perhaps as we see them, you know, associated one with another. Even an association between first uh, James and first Peter being diaspora letters, a diaspora letter to Jewish, Jewish believers in Jesus and a diaspora letter, probably mostly to Gentile uh, believers in Jesus. Um, but, but even that connection between the two letters invites later readers to associate them together and then interpret them um, um, uh, in tandem. And, and you know, uh, um, Dale Allison in his commentary on James, the ICC, the huge one, uh, lists all these connections between James and 1 Peter that, that uh, follow from that first one, both being letters of the diaspora. Um, and and the, the more we kind of follow through those, Similarities in vocabulary and similarities in the arrangement of the ideas that they talk about. Um, these seem to be tandem letters that need yeah. to be read together, uh, developing kind of a coherent theology between the two.
0: So, now those you, are the kind
1: of insights that I've been interested in. Now,
0: would you say that's a, would you take the canonical reading to say that? Uh, those who put the New Testament together were thinking in this way, like these belong together, or was it more of a divine inspiration type idea? Or how, how would you take that next step there? On yeah, so well, I mean, this is a this is an historical process. This is an historical process
1: that uh, readers um, received and read these texts as inspired, as from God. So um, God's providence is in this process, but it's a historical process that's happening. I think it's it's providentially moved along but it's the historical process of early Christians reading these texts and seeing in the texts. I mean, this is part of what I'm trying to argue, that readers saw in the texts of the Catholic epistles these connections. Let me be clear, it's not the original authors who were intending necessarily their letters to be read in in collection or in association with each other, but elements in the text readers see, observe, and make a judgment that, there's a connection here, there's a coherence here, and there's a logic then behind not only the inclusion of these seven letters together, but the arrangement. And I realize there are slight differences in arrangement um, uh, of these seven letters, but the amount of uh, differences in arrangement that we see in the manuscript tradition is so small uh, as to what they could have been had it been just a random arrangement. Um, that there's a logic to them, and that's that's what I'm arguing, that later readers are seeing this logic as they, as they follow features of the text. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's the – and tracing the canonical development of the Catholic epistles is to trace that historical process that brought these letters together. Yeah. The readers are observing
0: these elements in the text. Yeah, I remember uh, in, in seminary reading childs and hearing about childs, and I guess where I was at, he was not uh... – We're the most friendly uh, professor toward him that I had. Uh, He just sort of, you know, wanted to say, you know, this canonical stuff, there's not really historical precedent for it. It's sort of straining that. it's, It's wanting it to be more than it is. But the more I looked into it, and you know much more than I do about it, but it did seem to be that there was actually an historical precedent. For it, I mean, if you the Gospels are always grouped together, the Pauline right. letters are always oh, yeah. grouped together, it's sort of it, it, for some reason. Maybe it was just trying to the person was just trying to discount it, or maybe he just hadn't looked into it as much or, or whatever. But it did seem pretty obvious to me once I did like more more research on the canon itself that like this is kind of what was happening. It seemed like they had a point to do that. Yeah, so sure.
1: Like, I mean, one perspective could um, lay it out like this: um, there's a, a hermeneutical perspective that would say. In our exegesis what we're trying to do is um, get into the text and understand the intention of the original author and try to hold at bay anything in between me the exegete and the text you know the first century text that's uh, written so history of interpretation or reception or other kinds of uses of the text where we're actually trying to clear our vision so that we can exegetically just see what the text itself is doing Um, uh, but, but I think that ignores the fact that, um, these texts, we're studying these texts because they have been collected in an authoritative canon. And that collection process happened after the texts were written. So, um, we have to acknowledge that there is a collection consciousness. There's a reception moment. Let's call it the earliest reception and an authoritative and apostolic reception uh, that brought these texts together, these 27 texts and not other texts. The reason that I'm thinking my exegesis needs to focus so intently on these texts is already because of something that happened to them after they were written. (laughs) So all evangelicals kind of have this implicit canonical bias because we're studying these 27 texts, they have the authority, not other texts that came about in the same moment, even by, you know, Orthodox Christians, you know, yep. first Clement. Uh, um, so uh, I'm just saying, well, wait a second, that that that's telling us something. And we already implicitly are seeing that the collection of these 27 texts are guiding our understanding of them and our interpretation of them. There's more to it. There's mm-hmm. also arrangement that that has been kind of embedded in this uh, canonical uh, arrangement or reception um, um, that that should be a part of what we're we're thinking about. So, I mean, I would just argue this is as deeply an evangelical kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, um, um, Now what I
0: think evangelicals like to talk about the authorship and the fact that it's supposed to be there. They don't like to talk as much about the actual order of it. That's right, because there are
1: other uh, agents involved in editing, shaping, uh, arranging, collecting. Um, I I I am interested in arguing that um, our notion of of authorial intention needs to be broadened to to incorporate the intentions of editors, the intentions of compilers, and of course, divine intention. I don't at all mean to you know, in, in, intimate that there's some great disconnection between the human author and the divine author. Um, but our notion of authorship or uh, intentionality needs to include these other agents. Look at the Old Testament. Um, you know who's writing the end of Deuteronomy? Uh, is, is Moses writing with a tear in his eye? that's Jewish <laughs> interpretation, right? Or is it this horrible Monty Python sketch, right He's dying as he's writing the yeah, last yeah, yeah. lines you know <laughs> or is it there's a, there's editorial activity yeah. um, um, there's a an invisible hand there, or in other words, an unnamed. Um, author uh, in the text. And I, I think in God's providence, that editor, that compiler uh, who is leaving a trace of his activity in, in the text itself there in the Old Testament or in the New Testament uh, more often than not in the arrangement and collection of the text, um, those intentions are worth uh, considering as well. Because again, in
0: God's providence, Those intentions are now embedded into the final form of the canon. And that's the key, right? Like having a a high enough view of divine providence that you believe that God gave us what he wanted to give us. That's right. That's right. And so I've said it this way. I'm very interested in the space between composition
1: and canonization. That space um, holds lots of hermeneutical insights Mm. that are worth uh, thinking through. And then theologically they become uh, very interesting they're not the only theological insights but they're there's kind of that's a guide for me yeah. uh, if we're ever going to talk about theological interpretation of scripture or a kind of biblical theology th- those are um kind of objective or textual yeah. manuscript driven kind of historically uh engageable if i can say it that way um guides that i think
0: help theological reflection yeah. so you did a you did a book with uh with uh, Mickey Klink on biblical theology and different types of biblical theology, yeah. obviously canonical is one of those. Uh, you just did a session uh, here at IBR about that topic and had a lot of good uh, presenters, you know, taking different sides. and And one things that one of the things that was really clear was nobody really likes to be pigeonholed. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, we all kind of start somewhere. Uh, we all start in some sort of a category or some sort of a basic category. If you want to, maybe take just take a second to. to uh, ex- explain those five categories, right, yeah. and then we can kind of just just kind of talk through. Because I think this leads us into this question of, you know, what is biblical theology? How do we interpret the text when mm-hmm. we're preaching a sermon? Where do we start, right. and how do we finish, and that yeah, kind of thing? Right. So walk through just those those types a little bit. Yeah, and this so, is just called what introducing biblical theology. Yeah, understanding, understanding, understanding biblical theology.
1: theology yeah. yeah, with Zondervan and Mickey Klink, a dear friend, met at St. Andrews. He's a pastor in Illinois now. And I wrote this book together really because we were frustrated. Um, We were very interested in biblical theology or thinking theologically about the text, um, obviously, for the life of the church and preaching, um, and also understanding the coherence of of Scripture. But it just felt like such a a mess, you know, um, to each his own. And everybody's saying, I'm doing something theological or or my 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 writing is both biblical and theological so it was out of a sense of frustration that we wrote the book and and um, thought of some kind of five-fold taxonomy that would try to set the table so we could at least just describe what we see out there yeah so we're not even taking sides like do this one or this type of biblical theology is the best more what's happening out there so yeah. so it's and kind I,
0: read, of, I read that in my biblical theology class and it was so helpful yeah, just to give us a yeah. Just give us some sort of a framework to at least start with. Yeah, know, so. thanks. I appreciate that. It's helpful. And it, the spectrum is from more historical
1: to more theological. So BT1 on the historical end of the spectrum um, is very descriptive. Um, it's talking about what people back then, back there believed. Uh, so it's biblical in the sense that it's describing what ancient peoples believed in the biblical time period. But it has very little Kind of um, pressure to think about uh, prescription or what the church ought to do. It's a very historical task. Often it's a uh, antiquarian kind of interest. Therefore, it's more academic. It's more something you'd find in the in you know scholarship or something like that. Less less obviously in the church. Um, So that's bt1 most historical bt2 is a redemptive historical approach so it's still historical but it's a special history it's a divine it's acknowledging divine providence in the progression of history and scripture itself is a witness to the forward movement the progression of god's revelation through time and that's very descriptive—a redemptive historical. Um, we get into the weeds here. There's kind of different ways of thinking about redemptive history. We call it a Dallas school of uh, redemptive history and a, a Chicago school and a Philadelphia school. Yeah, right. there's kind of different ways of thinking about that. But all of them share this idea that God's uh, that Scripture is redemptive historical. It's moving forward. It's God's providential special history, as it were. Mm-hmm. It's not just secular. That's where you get into like history. typology and those yeah, types ty- of yeah. You would think about types how the Old Testament anticipates. Uh, what the new says, um, 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 and, and seeing fulfillment in Christ uh, and, and redemptive history is going to see Jesus as being kind of the center or, or the ultimate goal, goal of this reading. Mm-hmm. Um, though there's some critique there, does he come at the end only or does he also come at the beginning? Yeah, right. Which which moves us to other types of biblical theology because redemptive history has a great, great way of describing how It culminates in Christ, uh, but other ways of theological reading might say, well, don't we start with Christ? Isn't Christ before Adam? Well, that comes down later in the spectrum. So BT2, BT3 is a worldview narrative kind of approach, and narrative is the key idea here. A guy like uh, N.T. Wright is putting the whole Bible together, but not through redemptive historical lenses, but through a narratival lens. Um, I'm thinking of kind of the worldview story of the New Testament authors. It's almost the worldview and the mind of the New Testament author that connects the whole old and new. And there's there's really helpful readings here. Um, That's worldview story. Four is a canonical biblical theology. So child's this idea that um, the final form of the text is what's authoritative. But there's a whole layers of reception of that text that's embedded in that final form. And we can, through redaction, kind of see some of those moments of reception, uh, some of the ideas of collection and arrangement that we've just been talking about. That's all here in BT4. BT5 is theological construction. This is full-on taking theological categories, uh, doctrines, and bringing those with us as we read the text. So we're reading the doctrine of God. We're bringing that idea and seeing it coming about in the text. So those are kind of roughly the five views. Yeah, last night was really fun. Uh, had Walter Moberly and Stephen Fowl and Brian Rosner all giving papers, uh, giving us examples of biblical theology, theology, but then interacting with the categories. I, quite frankly, after the session, I was rather depressed. I thought, why did we write that book? <laughs> Nobody lined up nice and neatly in my categories. Yeah. Um, it's a failure. Uh, but actually went to dinner with Brian Rosner and later he just said, wait, no, no, all is not lost. Um, there's all kinds of helpful uh, ground plotting here. Like you just said, n- nobody wants to actually be pigeonholed. But when you, and, and, and all the papers had something in common, they were interpreting the Bible theologically. But when you start kind of digging into how did they get there, show me your work. The answer is not just 10, but show me how you did your mathematical work to get there. That's at the point where all three uh, presenters were very different. Yeah. Um, um, Stephen Fowle at the, at the end even just said, You know, I'm not interested in the, uh, the theology of the Bible. I'm interested in the church's engagement in a text that shapes them. Hmm. And uh, um, that's not, you know, he, he's interested in reading the Bible theologically, and the Bible for him is um, this authoritative guide, but it's all about how it shapes the community, not about how the Bible has a shape yeah, to yeah. it. But Rosner was all about the shape of the Bible. (laughs) I've got to start with creation and then think about fall. And, you know, uh, that's redemptive historical. Fowl is doing BT5. It's it's theological construction. He's bringing categories of, for for this case in point, virtue and curiosity, actually the vice of curiosity, bringing that concept with him to the text and and, and thinking about theological formation that the text uh, can exert on the community of faith. So, oh, well, you dig into those. Those are different ways of thinking yeah. about the Bible theologically, and you might say, "Hey, well, one has a better methodology or more clearly biblical methodology than the other." Um, rather than, you know, casting stones like that at the moment, I think it's let's just be good anthropologists and describe <laughs> what's there. Yeah, what are they doing? And it, you know, back to the book. It, I think it's still okay. I'm, I'm recovered now from my <laughs> doubt <laughs> last night. Um, I'm actually more encouraged now that it, it does have some heuristic value. He, yeah. A heuristic con- construct simplifies reality for the sake of learning and, and clarity. And and certainly these five kind of types simplify reality. Yeah. Last night, the reality was more complex. But when we break it down to methodological starting points and kind of um, bare starting convictions, uh, yeah, you can taxonomize that. You can, you can see there are different starting points um, you know, the last night was really
0: interesting. yeah, yeah, we were you and I were talking before about how you know I have struggled with which one I am, yeah. sometimes based on the text I'm preaching, sometimes yeah. based on uh, what I think the church needs to hear or whatever, but I feel like I'm a two sometimes and I'm a five sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it was really helpful for you to say, yeah, I mean it you still start somewhere, even yeah. though you may end somewhere, and it may be in maybe it is the text will shape it a little bit. but you know, i don't I don't think I ever do one. I don't think I'm ever there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the idea for, but oftentimes when you're preaching kind of a one-off sermon, I don't know how to quite get yeah. all that I need to get out of that yeah, when I'm just how, trying to explain and, a text. And, and, and how helpful you know? is it to dive into the
1: redaction history yeah, right. of the text when, when right. look, you know what, I mean, I'm final form is the authority here, and I'm, I'm preaching the gospel yeah. from this. And we were talking about this before. Um, I think it's a misapplication of any taxonomy, but especially the one that we've tried to develop to, um, I don't know, to pigeonhole yourself, in other words, to yeah. say, I am two, and I'm, you know, Hermetically sealed off from other ways of doing this because I'm only doing it this way. Rather, I think um, we kind of have this sweet spot where our training and our uh, convictions—we have a starting point—and I kind of camp out here. This is kind of where I pitch my tent usually. But I there's this thing over, so I might pitch my tent in BT2. Uh, but BT5 is doing some things that I think are really important. In other words, I, I don't want to just say that Jesus is the end of the story. I actually also want to say that before Adam there was Christ, yeah. and that in the Old Testament I'm I'm being pointed to Christ um, uh, in all kinds of ways through the sacrifices, through through Moses, through uh, through Jacob, and so there's a BT5 move there that uh, we might get to Jesus not just typologically there's a type anti-type connection that moves forward through the text that's quintessentially BT2 kind of redemptive history but but a BT5 might just say uh, well the text the old testament itself its ultimate subject matter is Jesus yeah it doesn't you know the old testament text doesn't have to be filtered through the new for it to witness to Christ it it has its own witness to Christ when you start talking like that yeah. those are the sensibilities of BT4 and BT5 yeah and i i i i don't Think it's wrong for someone who is really committed to BT two kinds of, kind of convictions to say, oh, but yeah, I like that. That's actually helpful. There's something, that uh, that speaks to reality, the yeah. theological reality of the text that BT five is saying, and and to incorporate that.
0: Yeah. On the one hand, when I'm preaching, and I was telling you this too, when I preach. I feel like I default to a certain Mm -hmm. sort of disposition. Sure. But when I'm writing more scholarly or academic stuff, like, I mean, my dissertation is a prime example, a Trinitarian reading of Revelation. That's very different than like how I preached Numbers 23 a couple of weeks ago when I was, you know, preaching uh, out of there. So even sometimes I feel like if I'm talking to the church, you know, I want to be in the text, I want to help them understand the text. I want to give them some sort of tools for reading it. Sometimes I feel like five, it would be so ethereal that they're just mm-hmm. like, I don't even know what you're doing, man. Like just tell me what the what the text says. Yeah, on you know, that so. point, I was really happy to
1: hear last night, you know, Stephen Fowl, someone who I mean, he 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 was resisting being pigeonholed and I don't wanna unfairly pigeonhole him, but I'm I'm thinking of him as a type five. Mm-hmm for sure, uh, being very theologically constructive with the text, and and he's a very interesting author. But he was talking to Brian Rosner and saying, I love what you just did yeah. uh, in this BT2 kind of reading of um, being known by God. Uh, and, and Fowle was insisting, that's helpful, that's theological, that's nourishing to the church. And so I was encouraged by that because the taxonomy is not to make enemies, yeah, uh, right. but to help describe what people are doing and sometimes what we're doing in different circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there could be an incoherence when we're just uh, rearranging our fundamental convictions about, about biblical theology or about methodology again mm-hmm. and again and again. Um, but I don't think that's happening as you're describing what you're doing in your dissertation yeah. and you're doing in preaching. You, you, the, the task that lies before you um, demands kind of some tools. And even though you probably, I mean, I'm making this assumption about you, you probably pitch your tent in BT2 most of the time. There's a moment to really engage the tools and the, the logic of BT5 for yeah. a certain question. How is Revelation a kind of Trinitarian yeah. Um, you know, pointing in a Trinitarian direction. Well, the tools of BT5 are going to really help you yeah. make that kind of argument. Yeah, and I that's guess- a true theological statement about revelation. It is you know, revealing the triune God, even if not in those terms or in the most developed kind of, you know, Chalcedonian uh, uh, view of things. It's still, those are, and I like to say it this way, uh Trinity is the judgment that the text is making, yeah. uh, 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 and 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 through your exegesis and careful reading of the text, you're, you're seeing that that is the ultimate judgment the text is is making. Again, a very BT five yeah. kind of thing. to say.
0: we we were preaching a sermon series on uh, the Apostles' Creed, so I feel like we pretty much have to be five if you're preaching the Apostles' yeah. Creed. Oh yeah, you know, so that one's gonna be. And I lean toward, like you said, kind of the two the historic historical redemption typology. I really enjoy that. I think when I'm preaching and when I'm teaching particularly, it helps people kind of understand how to read their Bibles because right. people are scared of their Old Testaments so or they don't yeah. know how oh, things yeah. fit. That's but, my story yeah. back there. And when I can see the redemptive yeah. sweep of, of history, right, there's redemptive historical
1: reading, ah, that all of a sudden becomes my story. Yeah, but, but story. I also
0: want to say, you know, you know, Christ is is God in the flesh, and the Holy Spirit is God living inside of you. I want to be able to say that right. stuff yeah. too, oh, yeah. and right. not leave that behind. Um, what do you think about I, this? Just came to mind, and I don't, I'm putting you on the spot here. I, I guess I put you on the spot the whole time. But um, uh, you know, there's the, that kind of evangelical preaching, which is very principled. Like, here's three yeah. points to improve yeah. your life. Here's does that actually fit? I almost feel like that's like a really weird like. Uh, theological interpretation, or something like that, sort of just very like ethereal yeah. principalizing. I don't yeah. even know if that really even fits. Yeah, so uh, I think people who believe in theological interpretation would be very offended that I said that. But I feel like it's sort of like a well, no, I mean I'm we not have dealing to deal in here as much as I am trying to give you some principles out here to help you. Yeah, okay? hermeneutically, you're you're
1: putting your finger on actually a very common evangelical hermeneutical move that we're doing some exegesis uh, on an ancient text and we're describing what it meant. Um, and we're trying to do justice to historical author and intention and situation and all that, and that's indispensable. History is necessary. Yeah. Um, I would argue, though, it's not sufficient, though. Yeah. It's it's yeah, on its own it can't do it. all the work. But, but but in this kind of grammatical historical hermeneutical mode, again, all of which we cannot do away with, um, leads us to this moment of what it meant, what it means. We've got to we've got to jump across a ditch. This is actually Lessing's ugly ugly ditch. Um, uh, but but it's the principalizing bridge. Uh, we have to take some kernel or nugget for, from the historical moment that we've described in our exegesis, somehow lift it out of its historical context, principalize it, um, and then helicopter it over to our moment <laughs> in time and then drop it in you yeah. know, to the applicational moment. Um, there are all kinds of problems with this theologically. I think this fits on the BT scale, though. This is going to be, again, BT two, but this is why we divide BT two down into a couple of different schools, as it were. Um, Yeah, that's um, true because they all let readers read that and figure out which school that might fit into. But but it's highly problematic because it's it's assuming some things about the text that is distant from us. Um, That that meaning back then and meaning now um, are are kind of irreconcilable. Uh, They're divorced. Um, There's a theological premise here that just says um, there is no ditch. It's always meant. Um, and, and I think it's a theological m- move, but a warranted one to say, well, the text has a historical referent, right? Um, it's talking about ancient Israel. It's talking about the early church. But at the same time, the very meaning of the text is pointing me, a contemporary reader, to Christ yeah. as it pointed them to Christ, as yes, indeed, even the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. Yeah. Because when we read, especially through the reality or the lens of the reality of Jesus' resurrection, Ah, that's what the Old Testament was always, ever about. Yeah. And, and realizing that the Old Testament was always, ever about Christ doesn't leave original readers behind, doesn't leave the referent, that kind of far referent, as it were, the old referent in the Old Testament behind, but it doesn't leave it there on its own. Yeah. I'm hoping that kind of makes some sense. But I yeah. think I think the, the principalizing, I understand why we get there, but but I think there are some. I don't know, maybe it's just popular to say it, but I think there are some modernistic kind of under, you know, uh, um, convictions that, that uh, force us to that dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, we even talk about um, um, this idea of what it meant, what it means. Um, uh, uh, Christopher Stendhal is kind of famous for having you know, described it in that way. And I think uh, some forms of biblical theology still work within the what it meant, what it means paradigm. Yeah. BT1 for sure, perhaps even BT2 Dallas. Um, but but quickly in the biblical theology scale that that um, that what it meant what it means becomes very problematic yeah. and theologically try to push beyond it. Yeah, yeah. I hope that addresses the question because yeah, yeah. that that's a, that's a longer conversation. It has yeah. hermeneutics attached to it, but hermeneutics attaches right into what biblical theology right. is and and you know moving into even what any kind of theological interpretation of scripture might be. Yeah,
0: no, it's helpful. It's funny. I th- I think through even. You know, there's there's some that have taken that whole thing, and then they'll pull Jesus out of the hat at the end. Y- yeah, which I appreciate better than nothing. Some don't even do that, but okay. it is sort of like I think but you're there right, are you know. there are poorer ways of doing that. <laughs> and
1: talk about the um, talk about the Apostles' Creed that you mentioned. Um, didn't you mention you, you preached on that or something? Yeah. yeah. So I think even the deployment of the Apostles' Creed can can be you know misleading in one way, but very helpful in another way. So we one could take the the theological assertions of the Apostles' Creed and and kind of anachronistically foist them upon the text and and then rearrange the text according to the to the creeds kind of logic and structure. Uh, I mean that's a theological move. Um, it's it's orthodox, but you might say, well, there's kind of an anachronism there. There's there's uh, something that is forcing that creed onto the text. I actually think these kinds of confessions, the rule of faith, the uh, comes out of the text and actually becomes a guide. So in class, sometimes I use this analogy. Um, Imagine, you know, I have, I need to go somewhere in LA and I have a map of LA and I take the map and I put it on the ground and I stand on the map and say, look, I'm in LA. (laughs) Right. Uh, Obviously everyone's saying that's stupid. Okay, you're crazy. You're not in LA. Well, to hold to the creed and let the creed reshape the scriptures is kind of like standing on the map. It's uh, maps always distort reality, but mm-hmm. they distort reality faithfully so that you can get to where you're going. The creed is like a map, but it's incomplete without the text. Right. The creed is is helping you navigate the theological mm, subject matter of the text itself. Yeah. And so we're foolish if we hold to the creed and let go of the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's standing on the map and you know not using a map for what it's used for. It, in, in, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that uh, there's a... There's a faulty way of using the Apostles' Creed as a theological guide or one that's not so helpful. But then there's another way that it's, it's crucial. Um, and with all kinds of maybe type four or five theological interpretation, um, there, there might be dubious ways of doing it. And I think that's where part of the argument is. Yeah. BT5 is already resisting some methodology. It's saying there isn't a method. It's a sensibility. It's a kind of set of concerns. I'm a little... Concern to say, but there's also some structure, some guidance. Yeah. The text itself is going to provide us some guides, uh, even in the most creative and kind of constructive theological engagement with the text. Anyway, I thought yeah. the rule of fair. I'm sorry, the um, Apostles' Creed, kind of an example,
0: yeah. could illustrate you know, maybe better and worse ways. Well, and if you you read the, uh, you know, the authors who drafted the creeds, they were all, I mean, the biblical text was saturated. That's what they were doing. They were trying to encapsulate the biblical text. That's right. They weren't trying to get away from it, which, uh, you know, that's a whole other argument about, how they distorted the text and made up their own doctrines and, and just you know, but yeah,
1: but I think all confession and again, you know, uh, as a Presbyterian, the Westminster Confession functions like this as well. I mean, it's foolish to hold to the confession and, and lose the text, but but the divines there at Westminster, they're they're doing something similar. They're yeah. reflecting deeply on the structure, shape, and you know, subject matter of Scripture and trying to render that in in kind of confessional terms. And um, I, I think a theological way of engaging scripture, a BT-5, uh, a positive BT-5 kind of way of doing things is to re-engage uh, confession. Yeah. Um, again, understanding where that confession lies and its authority and and its kind of temporality as it were, but nonetheless realizing they're, they're helpful guides yeah. for us to engage the text of scripture.
0: Okay, let's take a hard, a hard turn to something that's significantly less important. You're a uh, grad of Kansas. Oh so yeah, you're a Jayhawks no, no, basketball fan, This is very right? important. Yeah, <laughs> this is number two on the list. <laughs> um, so, growing up a Jayhawks fan, you've been relatively blessed. You know, you've always had a, a pretty good team. Oh no, no, not just relatively blessed. Like blessed among all other basketball programs.
1: You, <laughs> it's not even relative. You do, it is yeah, you idea. do realize that the inventor of basketball, James Naismith, That's was the point. first coach at the University of Kansas, and The rules themselves, in his own hand, are at the university. So I'm pretty sure they're held there. It is the mecca of, of all basketball yeah. well that was very humble of you to say yes um, i can keep going too uh well, arena you know you know where out of rup learned to play basketball lawrence kansas and also the dean
0: dome dean smith yeah
1: mm-hmm. also learned his basketball at kansas you, and you learned your basketball in lawrence kansas yeah right? i just everything I, I learned my basketball appreciation and watching i uh <laughs> all my friends
0: in fact oh my goodness yeah all my friends know that when i play basketball i hurt myself so um i'll watch do you think that Bill Self says, you know, that he's tried to pretend like they're the only major program that's not cheating and not paying oh, players? Why do you bring do, this do you, up? Do you believe that?
1: Do you this, believe that? Oh,
0: you are unkind. This hurts my I'm heart. I'm just trying to be fair to the greatest well, basketball yeah, program well, ever. okay, you know? so
1: everyone has heroes, and when those heroes show <laughs> flaws, there are moments of crisis. Um, yeah, it's really sad, isn't it? And And it seems so very clear. Not that I've done huge research into this, but yeah. I've read a bunch of the – descriptions of the FBI investigation and it just seems like all programs anymore to recruit elite elite athletes, yeah. you know, like this, they're they're doing all that they can and it, it seems pretty clear that the coaching staff has, has been complicit with some of this well, i'm
0: glad to hear that you're the first jayhawks fan who i've heard actually admit that they all say that bill self would never do that or he well, would never know about it or I, I i could deceive myself here uh, <laughs> but the
1: heart the heart wants what it wants and yeah it tells you what it wants exactly to believe. right yeah uh, so, so that's hard that's sad because i love the program i mean i was in 1988 when danny manning and the miracles won yeah. i was on campus i was a ninth grader uh uh celebrating you know everyone pouring beer on my head i really shouldn't have been there but <laughs> but uh yeah, and and my father-in-law and Nicole, my wife, we're we're just died-in-the-wool fans. Yeah, uh, so funny when I moved out to California. One of my colleagues, I was moving from New York, and one of my colleagues was on the phone. It was when KU was losing to UCLA in the final four, and he calls me, and he's shouting UCLA, being an obnoxious <laughs> fan, and of course I'm not very happy on the phone he said don't worry when you move out here to california give it like 6 months you'll you'll start you'll start cheering for ucla and i just said brother you have no idea who you're talking to i bleed crimson and blue yeah, and you have an actual degree, so you're not just like a bandwagon uh, fan. You're yeah, actually right. from there. I graduated, yeah, and my daughter is there now. So. Oh, is she? That's awesome. And my wife graduated from there. Yeah. I have other family members actually who live in Lawrence, so yeah, yeah, that's that's home for us. Well, you could
0: make the argument, I guess, that if they would actually pay the players for the billions yeah. of dollars they bring in, they wouldn't well, have that problem. Right on. But I mean, yeah, there's, there's a logic to that as well, yeah. sure. It's a whole other – my, my sister-in-law, uh, she played D2 basketball, and I talked to her about that, and she just said – I mean, for D2 basketball, it doesn't really make any sense. We don't yeah. make the school that much money, and yeah. We, yeah, but you know, D1. Oh my we get goodness. taken yeah. care of. But D1, it's just a whole different ballgame. Yeah, ball Kansas game. is on the map because yeah. of our basketball program. It's a whole different ballgame, yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and um, it's it's uh, what I, of course, I'm a Kansas fan, so I'm going to you know be prejudiced. But what I've always liked about Kansas teams is that they really play together. I like the high-low kind of offense, the, the ball movement and yeah. you know um it's just it's pretty basketball yeah. when it when it works well the pass for the dunk is just really pretty or the fast break and the extra pass you know kicking out to a three-pointer it's just really pretty basketball yeah
0: when it, and they've uh, kind of managed to keep that i mean even as even as basketball sort of evolving yeah. around them they well last
1: last year was an anomaly we we did not have uh, a real trio of big men we only had one big man uh, so they couldn't play the high-low so we relied on three-pointers all yeah, year and, and got gold, to the like final four. state yeah yeah so was kind of amazing uh, but this year this is traditional kansas basketball a trio of big big guys yeah. in there really good passers and
0: yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, yeah, nowadays, I shout at my TV quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nowadays though, these kids that even even these kids that are six eight, six nine, they're they're shooting threes. Oh yeah, you know, it's yeah. not the same as it used to be. So that's even right. then, they're still. you know, that It changes still the game. Up. It stretches the game. Yeah. does isn't it? Yeah. But, but do you but, think that's a good
1: thing or a bad thing? Oh, I don't know. It just is. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not much of a purist there. Yeah. I'm, I just enjoy the enjoy the basketball. Hey, something else that makes me want to argue that Kansas is the best, Will Chamberlain played his basketball at the University of Kansas, probably arguably the best basketball player ever to have lived. Yeah, I know MJ, pretty amazing. Steph, pretty amazing. LeBron, but uh, uh, Chamberlain uh, averaged 50 points a game for mm-hmm. an entire season. What well, helps being six inches taller than everybody else. True enough. You know? In fact, I think even the rules for the free throw were changed for Will Chamberlain. Yeah. You cannot dunk a free throw because <laughs> – of
0: Will Chamberlain. And I think the key was expanded also because, yeah. because of him. So anyway. You, I'm guessing you don't buy into the conspiracy theory that the 100-point game wasn't really a 100-point game. What are you talking the about? The only proof is that there's a picture of him holding a piece of, of paper that he himself game. wrote a 100. Uh, that's heresy. Of okay. course. Well, we weren't there. So I'm just saying. I trust you know. the tradition. <laughs> well, Darian, thanks so much, man. Enjoyed the conversation.
1: Indeed. It was my pleasure. Thanks.